0: So this morning we are continuing in a series in the book of Ephesians, where we're studying Christ and the church. And we're seeing what Paul has to say, not only to the church in Ephesus, but to us. What it means to be in Christ, and what this demands of us as Christians. So this morning, we come to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. So please turn with me in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1. It can be found on page 976 in the Pew Bible. So Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. Hear now the eternal living word of God. For this reason, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. So as many of you may already be aware, my wife Pam and I have six wonderful children. And if you're interested, you can ask me after worship. I'll tell you all their names. Now, If you were to track most of the things that our children say to Pam and I, it would be mostly them asking us for things. Can I have a snack? Can I watch TV? Can you fix my tablet? And so on. It's a seemingly endless list of things that they ask us for or request of us. And they rarely take no for an answer. Now, sometimes our prayers can be similar. I know for myself, it can often be that I'm simply requesting a bunch of things from God. Now, we're told in the Bible to ask God for things. Jesus clearly taught this. He said, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened unto you. There are many places in Scripture where we're told to make our requests known to God. But that shouldn't be the whole of our prayer life. Um, Many of you may be familiar with the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S. It's a helpful tool to teach us how to balance our prayer life. If you're unfamiliar with it, it's A for adoration. We should be praying in adoration and prayer, praise of God. C is for confession. We should be confessing our sins in prayer. T for thanksgiving. We should be giving thanks to God in our prayers. And S for supplication. We should be asking God for what we need and especially praying for the needs of others. And so, our passage this morning, Paul offers up a prayer of thanksgiving, which is typical when he opens one of his letters. And so, from Paul's prayer, we'll consider three reasons for you to praise God in your prayers. The first reason is the gifts of the Father, second is the illumination of the Spirit, and the third is the triumph in the Son. So, Paul opens the letter praising God. In the first 14 verses of chapter 1, Paul is praising God for all the blessings he has given us in Christ, for choosing us in adoption in Christ, for uh, making us children and heirs of an inheritance, for giving us hope in this life. And now he writes a prayer of thanks and praise for the believers in Ephesus he really is continuing the praise that he opens the letter with. He writes, starting in verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So Paul begins his prayer thanking God for the faith and the love of the Ephesian believers. And Paul planted this church in Ephesus. Ephesus. And he stayed there for longer than he did anywhere else on his missionary journeys. He was there about three years. He had many tears and trials with them. And now he's writing this letter from prison. And he's responding with joy and thanks, hearing about the spiritual growth of this church, of these people that he knew personally and loved. And he specifically mentions their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their their love toward all the saints. And this is typical in Paul's letter, that he often includes key themes of his letter in the prayer of thanksgiving that he opens with. And so we'll see faith and love are prominent themes of this letter that we'll we'll come across later in later chapters. And so Paul, I've mentioned this before, Paul rarely, if ever, prays for things. He always is praying for people. And his prayers for people often have to do with their spiritual well-being. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Then in verse 17, he gives the content of his prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And so this, the first chapters of Ephesians has this Trinitarian theme to it. Paul speaks of the three persons of the Godhead throughout this chapter, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there's a Trinitarian aspect to Paul's prayer here. It begins with Paul's request that the Father give the believers in Ephesus the spirit of wisdom and the knowledge in the revelation of God. So I've included in this outline the, the Trinitarian layout to praise God. We can praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost and the first reason we see here to praise God in your prayers is the gifts of the Father. In Reformed theology, or covenant theology, there's something called the covenant of redemption. It's an eternal covenant within the Godhead, within the members of the Trinity. And within this covenant, the members of the Trinity have a role with their plan of redemption. And this goes into eternity past. The Father chooses a people for the Son. The Son redeems those people. He accomplishes the redemption of his people. And the Spirit applies this redemption to those who have been chosen. By working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ. And we see some of this early in chapter 1 of Ephesians. When Paul says that God chose you. Before the foundation of the world, he's speaking of the Father. The Father chooses. And we see here that the Father also gives. Jesus taught us about praying to the Father and asking him for things. Asking the Father to give gifts is an important part of prayer. Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, which I mentioned earlier. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And he follows his teaching with an illustration. He says, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And so God the Father gives what we ask for beyond anything we could do as earthly parents. I can't imagine as an earthly father not giving my children what I thought was best for them. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm a sinner. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? And so you can praise and thank God for the gifts of the Father, that you can come to Him in prayer and ask Him for things. And so when we consider that acronym ACTS for prayer. It doesn't mean you have to pray in nice neat little categories. It's just a guide to balance your prayer life. And so you can praise God in asking him for things. Praise God that he hears and answers your prayers because he answers from his infinite knowledge and wisdom. He answers from the riches of his grace and in his providence he works all things for the good of his people. Jesus even taught us to be persistent in prayer, to continue to ask God for the things you want and need. And you can praise God, the giver of all good things, that as a child of God, you can receive the gifts of your heavenly father. But Paul asked for something specific from the father here, that he may give the Ephesian believers the spirit of wisdom and of knowledge and revelation of God. And so the second reason you can praise God is for the illumination of the Spirit. And this is something you can ask for and praise God for at the same time, which is what Paul is doing, because it's the Holy Spirit who illuminates the things of God to us. Paul says the Spirit of wisdom, which would be godly wisdom, the Holy Spirit can help you make right decisions. If you pray for wisdom to God, the giver of all good things, he will give it. And wisdom is making the right decision. It's a skill of living a godly life. And Paul also says the spirit of the knowledge in the revelation of him, meaning the revelation of God. The Holy Spirit illuminates the things of God to us, specifically the scriptures. The Holy Spirit, who ultimately is the author of Scripture illuminates the truth of the Scripture to us. No one believes in the Scripture. No one believes that the Bible is true until this happens, until the Holy Spirit brings you to spiritual life and reveals that the Bible is the very Word of God. Then you believe it. And this work continues. The Holy Spirit reveals the truth of the Scripture and the revelation of God to you continuously throughout your Christian life. The illumination of the Spirit isn't interpreting some secret code in the Bible, but it's making what is plainly there and taking it and making it real to us. It's bringing the truth of God's word to light for us. There are plenty of people who read the Bible, who know what it says, but they never believe it. It's not that they're somehow less intelligent, but that God hasn't granted them this ability to see it. We need the Holy Spirit to understand and believe the truth of God's word. So you should pray, for illumination of the Holy Spirit, every time you read or study God's word, every time you hear it preached, that God may illuminate the truth of his word in your heart, that the Holy Spirit may enlighten your minds to enable you to know, see, grasp, and apply the will and purposes of God in your life. And the illumination of the Spirit often comes upon us in our normal ways of understanding. As you're reading the scripture, you'll, you'll sense this truth of the word. And this is the pathway of the righteous, godly life before God. The word of God illuminated by the Holy Spirit, leading you to knowing and loving and doing God's will on a daily basis. So ask God for the illumination of the spirit and praise him for the understanding and knowledge of his will that he brings. So Paul, after stating that he's praying for the Spirit's illumination, he says what the result of this illumination will be. In, starting in verse sixteen, he says eighteen, he says, Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. What Paul prays that his readers understand and know from the Spirit's illumination relates back to the blessings he listed earlier in this chapter. The first one we see here is the hope to which he has called you. God chose you and chose all of us to be before the foundation of the world to be in Christ, and he has called you to an eternal hope. According to God's will, when he saw fit, the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And convinces you of your state of sin and misery. Enlightens your mind and the knowledge of Christ and renews your will. And upon this, you're persuaded and enabled to embrace Jesus Christ as he is offered to you in the gospel. And in this, you have hope now in Jesus Christ. And the Spirit gives us this belief and this knowledge of this hope. He also makes us aware of the inheritance that awaits all who are in Christ. According to the will of God and his eternal promises as our guarantee, we will pass into glory upon death. Then we will be raised in glory in the future resurrection, acquitted in the final judgment, and made perfectly blessed in the full enjoyment of God to all eternity. And this is our future inheritance. He also says that our hearts will be enlightened in verse 19 to what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. It's amazing and and unbelievably encouraging to think that the all-powerful, almighty creator of heaven and earth, the creator of the whole universe, has put his vast magnitude of power into effect for the advantage of those who believe in Christ. The immeasurable, surpassing greatness of God's power is at work for you. The power of God, which the magnitude of is beyond our comprehension, is working for your benefit. So no matter how weak you feel, because we all are weak. No matter how hopeless and inadequate you are, because we're all hopeless and inadequate on our own. No matter what your situation is or what your circumstances might be, the all-powerful Creator the self-sustaining I am has put his vast power into effect for your benefit. And this is so important that Paul spends the rest of this section elaborating on the magnitude of God's power. He says, starting in verse 19, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his grace, might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul saying that the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the power that is working in us, and for us. The same power that seated Jesus Christ in the heavenly places and has given him all rule and authority and a power and dominion over everything is the power that is at work for you. The same power that has given Jesus Christ the name that is above every name for this age and the eternal age to come is at work for you. And this brings us to our third reason that we can praise God You can praise God in your prayers. The triumph in the Son. The power of God raised Jesus from the dead, seated him at the right hand of the Father, gave him all authority over everything, and gave him the name above all names. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's power on display. He raised Jesus from the dead and in his triumph over sin and death. Jesus rose from the dead in a triumphant resurrection. Then he ministered on earth for 40 days in his glorified, resurrected body. He appeared to groups of people, teaching them about the kingdom. And then at the end of the 40 days, he gathered his disciples together, saying, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Then Jesus ascended bodily into heaven as his coronation as king. And now he reigns in the heavenly places at the right hand of the Father. In his ascension, Jesus has been exalted over everything. He is above every king, every emperor, every political leader that has ever been upon this earth. He's above every spirit, good or evil. The mighty power of God has exalted and enthroned him. And so to understand the power of God that is at work at you, you must fully understand the resurrection and the exalted Christ. Jesus prayed to the Father in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So Jesus desires that every one of his people, everyone that has come to him in faith and believed in him, also sees his glory. That we will see his glory, the glory that the Father has given him because he loved him before the foundation of the world. So the more the Spirit illuminates the Scripture to you, the more you increase in your knowledge of the revelation of God, the more you know how little you deserve. But because of the greatness of God, you've been blessed in Christ beyond your wildest imagination. But the power of God is not only at work for God's people individually, but also collectively as the church. Paul concludes here in verses 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. So God's power not only raised Christ from the dead and seated him triumphantly at the right hand of the Father with all his and our enemies conquered under his feet. God also is giving Christ to the church as the victorious, authoritative head over everything. Christ's authority and reign over all things. Now the church is his body is the body of the one who rules over heaven and earth. So God, therefore, uses the church. He uses all of us as his own instrument for transforming and renewing the world. Because Christ and his body are one, therefore the victory of Christ is the victory of his church. And so as we move forward in the life as as the church of Christ, we can know that Christ is victorious. He has triumphed over everything in the universe, both seen and unseen, physical and spiritual. And therefore, we are victorious in him. And this gives us both hope and encouragement. So we've already discussed your hope as an individual, that your soul will be made perfectly in holiness at your death. You'll immediately pass into glory. And then you'll be raised in the future resurrection and be with God in eternity in all his glory. But there's also the collective hope of the church in Christ, the body of Christ. Because when you consider the state of the church and Christianity within our society, it doesn't look good. It's become increasingly more difficult to be a church that is true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christians and open belief in the gospel and the Bible are under attack in our society. The people who... Openly disparage Christians who are growing in numbers, they grow in prominence, and it's become acceptable in most parts of our society to do this. All the while, the number of Christians in our country is decreasing, really, throughout all of Western culture. Churches throughout the country are struggling, some have to close their doors. But even with all of this, there is hope for the church because the church is the body of Christ. The church is victorious now and for eternity. And so when Christ conquered sin and death, we are his body. And so when he returns, all things are put into subjection to him. The church conquers and reigns with him. This is guaranteed just as much as any promise of God. And so there are future aspects of our reign with the Lord Jesus. And you can look forward eagerly to that day. But you can also remember that we are reigning with Christ now. Sin no longer has dominion over those who believe in Jesus. We live in the gracious era in which we've been adopted as God's children. And by the Spirit, you can now conquer sin in your own life and grow in holiness. You're also free from the tyranny of the law. You're free from the guilt of the law. And so our reign as kings and queens in Christ is a present reality that we'll enjoy in its fullness at the resurrection of the dead. And at that point, we'll be enthroned beside Christ and we'll enjoy by grace what is his by right. And until then, you are to reign over your sinful passions, submitting your mind, your will, and your affections to Jesus by the power of the Spirit, through his word. And all of this gives us as the church, the body of Christ, encouragement. Encouragement in facing the days ahead. No matter how bleak it may look, no matter what the immediate future may hold, Jesus Christ reigns supreme now, and we reign with him now. And we will be brought to the fullness of this reign upon his return, where he will reign for eternity. As Jesus told Peter in Matthew 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we can be encouraged in the face of disappointment, rejection, knowing that the victory of the church is not in our hands. Christ is triumphant, and therefore his body is triumphant. Christ is victorious, therefore the church is victorious with him. And so as we will struggle and suffer in this world, as Christ promised us we would do, let us hold on to the future hope and encouragement of the triumph of Jesus Christ. And we can praise God in our prayers for the gifts of the Father, for the illumination of the Spirit, and the triumph of the Son, all to the glory of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, to praise you, to thank you, to worship you. We praise you for all the gifts that you have given us, blessings beyond our wildest imaginations, the gift of life, family, and friends, the gift of the church, the gift of faith and belief in your Son. You've given us the gift of your Son that his sacrificial death we are forgiven of our sins and that we may have life, eternal life in him. Lord, we praise you for the illumination of your spirit, that your spirit brought us to spiritual life and reveals the truth of your word to us, that we may know how to love you and obediently follow you for the rest of our lives. And Lord, we praise you for the triumph of your son, Jesus Christ in whom you have given him the name above all names. You have put him above as the authority over all things, and you have given us to him, that we are his and we will reign with him now and in eternity. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.